that panic that a parent has, for example, when suspect their child is trans or when they learn their child is trans, that panic is really goes to the real root of what happens when we say we're pregnant, right? Is it a boy or a girl? Or if we see a baby, is it a boy or a girl? It's such an important part of how we organize our work. No one gets to tell you mm. whether you're valid or not. You get to decide. Mm. It's your lived experience. This is your truth. This is your reality. And just because a lot of people don't get it doesn't mean it's not real and it's not valid. And that's a scary, scary place to be when you're trying to look for, you know, in the world around you for that that mirrors you and you're not finding. Welcome to Asking for a Friend, the podcast that covers all those topics you may want to know more about, but might feel a lot of shame in asking. I'm your host, Katrina Buffard, and I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, speaker and sexuality researcher. This week's episode is sponsored by My Sexual Health, credible sexual health providers. MySexualHealth.co.za is an online destination where you can find or become a credible sexual health provider. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to learn more about how to become a credible sexual health provider and for a discount to the Sexology Training Club. Today I'm speaking to two experts in this field, Elliot Kotzer and Ron Adenal. Both work in the field of mental health and have specialized in gender-affirming healthcare, and both share with me their own journeys around gender identity. This is a particularly beautiful, honest, and authentic conversation that I think is a must-listen, no matter what your knowledge on the subject or who you identify as. I just want to start by asking the both of you, and perhaps Elliot, we can start with you. What what brought you as a psychologist? How did you get into this work? My very first two clients when I started practicing there uh, as a psychologist, my very first two clients were trans clients, and and that's that's kind of been the 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 at least fifty percent of my practice since then um, have been trans clients. So. So starting at the very beginning with those first two clients, kind of what I what I remember thinking back to it now is is kind of scrambling for information. Like what what do you do? What is expected of me? Um, first up, like as a as a healthcare as as a psychologist specifically, what is what is expected of me? Am I now expected to give someone a a clean bill of mental health or, or what is the what is the thing so so what really stands out for me from those days is the scrambling for information um finding stumbling upon the wpath guidelines finding other colleagues who who were also starting to work in the field i think that that sort of set the, the tone for me and, and kind of made me aware of the need for thinking around gender affirming care in general and that leveled up in 2018 when I came out as trans and started embarking on my own transition journey which really just kind of brought it home for me just how bad the lack of knowledge in in healthcare circles in general were so so that's that's been kind of what's what's keeping me in in this I think currently is is just the 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 lack of lack of awareness around 
trans people are people and, and and we have we have specific needs but we also have just needs that other people have and and kind of engaging with people around that awesome and it's so interesting you know the personal and the professional experience that you've had and i i would love to get into perhaps how invaluable that must be actually for mm. your clients to have somebody talking to them from a place of lived experience not just from a mm. place of theoretical experience run what about you how how did you kind of come into this work and and as extensively as we have oh, so this is where i now out myself as the elderly person in the space today. <laughs> uh, how it came about for me is over 20 years ago so you spoke about 2018 elliot so you're such a baby it's when i came out that's when i came out um, so yeah, so I first um, started specializing in the field of sexology in around 1994-95. I was a social worker at two military hospitals. One of the outcomes of my sexology training was I established a sexual health clinic at two military hospital in Weinberg. So I was the clinical social worker in the psychiatry department and I had the sexual health clinic. And so we're talking about late 1990s. And essentially, I had developed this reputation of, so firstly, people didn't understand what a clinical social worker was, what's the difference between that and being a psychotherapist and a psychologist, and then what the hell is a sexologist? And um, they didn't know what that was at that stage. So I had this reputation of, he's the one that does the strange things. And um, so what happened was I was, I had the sexual health clinic started, I was working in the mental health field, and so by chance, a Air Force person phoned into the Department of Psychiatry and told the person in reception that they are presently an Air Force male presenting person and that they believe they're a woman and they want help, to which um, the poor administrator ran around the psychiatry department asking, so ooh, who's going to take this case? And apparently it was said, oh, these are the kinds of things Ronald handles. And so I found myself getting my very first ever referral of a person who then happened to be a trans woman. I remember sitting across from her in our first consultation and she said, you know, um, she's always known and basically told her story. And I remember sitting across from her and saying, I want to help you, but I have absolutely no idea how I'm going to help you, but we're going to figure this out together. So please know at this stage, there's no gender dynamics. Triangle, pro pro Triangle Project at that stage was still primarily focusing on lesbian and queer men. The T in the LGBTQ at that stage was very silent at uh, Triangle Project. So yeah, I sat across this woman and I said, well, you're going to need to teach me. And she took my hand. And we created a multidisciplinary team. I got the OT involved. I got speech involved. And luckily, the head of endocrinology was a flaming queen who I got on very well with. So I got her in on the team. And um, I just had these people around. And we we got together and, sh and, 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 and she taught us what we initially needed to know. And yes, then we also found, found WPATH, got all of the various, you know, um, uh, you know the, the criteria, which was very problematic. Then we that was still the time when you had to do, you had to live for two years, um, you know, all that ridiculous old old stuff. But yeah, so I found myself across her, 
And she took my hand and, and that's why in so many spaces, I still say today that I think what I really do know and understand about, you know, being a gender affirming therapist is what my clients have taught me. <laughs> Everything I went and read in the science later was, oh, yeah, no, that makes sense, but it makes sense because it resonated with the lived authentic narratives of my clients. And so typically, so um, today she has been transitioned for many years. She's a loud mouth activist in South Africa. So whenever she has a win, I always let her know I claim 50% of all of her wins because I was there <laughs> at her birth. Um, so we have that kind of relationship. And then, as you guys know, you know, um, then it became known that I had done this work. She told others. And then I started getting calls. Can you see me too? Can you see me too? So I got permission from the military that I could see private clients. And I saw more trans clients. And then Triangle Project approached me and was hearing about the work that I was doing. And they were being accused of their silent T. And then they said, well, would you come and volunteer for us at Triangle Project, which I then agreed to do where I then was seeing individuals, I was seeing families and couples, and then I started facilitating the support group, which I ran for, for 14 years. So it found me, it took my hand, and I've never looked back. Um, it is probably the aspect of my, you know, of my work as, as a sexologist and, you know, within the field of gender-affirming healthcare that's given me probably the most significant level of, I think I've learned the most, um, from my clients and has given me such, such um, satisfaction. And then as work that finds us, teaches us, I was only able to really come into a fuller, I had a fellow therapist and trans person say, Ronald, no one does this work for this long with such commitment just because. So I then um, went through a bit of my own process um, and probably in the last, just over a year ago, I've come into the owning and the acknowledging of the gender non-binary and gender non-conforming aspect of my, of, my, of my gender identity as well. So that, that's been gifted to me by, by so many of my clients and having to self-reflect all the time. What is really interesting that you've both shared is that for the both of you, your first clients or patients were trans people, were people trying to navigate and understand their gender identity. Ron, for you, particularly at a time where there was no instruction manual or the, the you know, even then later on the instruction manual, for a loose term for that, that existed was pretty diabolical. Mm. And I, I'm just curious as healthcare providers for the both of you, you know, where, where are we at now versus where were we at when you started? And Ron, you can obviously give us further back than, than Elliot and I can as younger therapists. But I'm wondering, you know, how far we have actually come in the way that healthcare has transitioned itself into creating gender affirming healthcare spaces. So, so, so on a, on a pathologizing level, I think we've made great strides. Ron referred to the back in the day you had to live for two years in your chosen, quote unquote, scare quotes, um, chosen gender before they would accept that this is really who you are. Um, so I think the 
the number of hoops you have to jump through in order to to get an affirming healthcare experience have uh, that yeah that number has gone down at the same time though <laughs> we shouldn't think that a, a, a less pathologizing lens um, necessarily means that it's a better reality for people it's not the reality is still that people actively and I mean, with therapy, we are, in terms of psych- psychological therapy, we are going to seek out someone who resonates with us, right? Um, but but even with, with primary healthcare providers, um, trans folks seek out those people who they know will be affirming. You're not going to take the chance um, going to your regular GP if you're not sure. Um, and, and that's partially because it is known, it is widely known and well known that that most healthcare providers don't know what is expected of them. They don't know what the, what the hormonal treatment regimens are, for example, or where to even go looking for them. So I think that's, that's part of why there, there's this tendency to cluster towards certain healthcare providers. It's just a matter of, but they know already. So, so in that sense, I think it's, it's, it's much better now than it was, just in terms of, the pathologizing stuff so when you when you pose the question you know how has the health system kind of evolved or gotten better my first instinctive is well it's it's got somewhat better but what's what's made the most significant difference in my experience now through the years has been less about the health system and been more about the trans and gender diverse community that found its voice and started creating spaces. So the fact that we ended up having a gender dynamics, the fact yeah. that more NPOs started to you know, exist in parts of South Africa, the fact that the international trans and gender diverse communities started to become more vocal, the level of advocacy, the, the, mm. the making available of information like I mean, I just remember. I mean, I, I'm still old school. I'm like mostly on Facebook. I know that also, you know, ages me. But, <laughs> but just how many? Um, so how the so how um, social media and social platforms started connecting and creating communities that were able to speak more loudly and be more confrontational of the healthcare system. For me, that's the most critical and the most powerful and the most significant change. As a consequence of that, what I have seen and, and, and you know, what you've also been referring to, Elliot, what, what frustrates me still is that it still very much depends on who certain healthcare, like certain doctors and certain psychologists and certain, you know, um, social workers in spaces who get it still need that you still find that like there's the one or the two or you know persons that's kind of needing to stand up and speak so i would not talk about the health system has significantly moved i think there are critically uh there are people in spaces challenging and and questioning um but I think there's still predominantly a lot of conservatism. There's still a lot of resistance. There's still a lot of ignorance um, to a percentage that is still uncomfortably too large, in my opinion. And so there's still a lot of work 
that I think needs to happen before we can say what well, in the South African context, that we have a health system that significantly or sufficiently recognizes and acknowledges the transgender diverse you know, among us and that there is a real commitment to the appropriate gender-affirming healthcare services across the entire spectrum that's needed. Yeah, I completely agree with that. There's aspects of the health system that have changed, mm. but but and 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 of how we use the health system that have changed, but those haven't all come together nicely in a in an accepting, affirming healthcare system itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's obviously then we've also got the disparity, particularly in South Africa between the public and the private healthcare sector. But to to kind of follow on from your point, Ron, it's interesting, obviously, my my kind of specialty is in sexual, unwanted sexual pain. And again, much like you've been describing with gender affirming healthcare, it really is that people will seek out the doctor or the therapist that they know will believe them. I mean, about what it is that they're going through, will support them. And, and that happens across the board, you know, sex, gender, reproductive health. Mm. And it's then the second point that I, I was thinking of is that, isn't it interesting? I mean, in South Africa, we are very fortunate that we have very progressive, in, in terms of, of a lot of countries in the rest of the world, particularly in Africa, very progressive sexual, gender and reproductive rights. But that does not mean that there's cultural acceptance that there's community acceptance and we see that a lot in the black communities which is horrific and i mean it it it's 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 an ongoing battle isn't it so you've you've got the community and the advocacy that takes place within the community where this voice gets louder and louder which is phenomenal thank goodness that's happening and thank goodness you know i was listening to a very interesting podcast the other day talking about sex education and how teenagers experience sex education and these teenagers, this UK-based podcast, these teenagers are talking about social media as their most reliable source of sex education. And yes, I have a love-hate relationship with Instagram. There's my generation, Ron, <laughs> Instagram. But but the truth is, while they're all of the not-so-nice sides of it, there are so many spaces to affirm how somebody's feeling, what somebody's going through, who somebody believes that they are. And those can be found on places like social media, when, you know, somebody can talk about a healthcare provider that assisted them, somebody can talk about a space, a group, an organization to turn to. So it's interesting when you've got the the voices of those within the community getting louder and louder, but the healthcare providers only, almost, I, I've seen it, unfortunately, a lot, reluctantly needing to catch up. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think I think queer health in general and trans health in particular is a is an optional extra or is seen as an optional extra in terms of just healthcare education, continuing education and and basic education. It's it's one of my big bugbears that we that we place things like different sexuality, different gender, but also things like disability, 
cultural differences. We we add these on as kind of extra learning units um, that people need to take. When when in actual fact, I think our, our whole approach needs to be uh, needs to be inclusive of those to start. And uh, yeah, so that's a big that's a big issue for me. That's also been I mean that's that's been kind of the, the focus of the work that I do activist wise. So most of the activist work that I do at the moment is at the level of healthcare provider education. And that's been that's been kind of the thing that I've been pushing for um, in general is is to say that this is not an extra thing that you learn. It's it's a whole different approach to humans because it's 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 just showing you it's showing you the fallacies of of the, the certain lenses that you have been using perhaps that's the that's the confrontational part but it's 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 an approach to to humans in general because if you if you treat um a neurodivergent person for example with the same courtesy and respect and uh, affirmation that you would a neurotypical person there's nothing there's nothing needed nothing extra needed there same with with gender diverse and trans folks um you don't need extra skills i think that's the the bottom line of my my story is you don't need extra skills you just need a a, a more affirming and accepting approach and you need to be more critical about your own stuff um, Ron spoke about his his gender stuff coming up through work. Absolutely, our own stuff comes up through work, through the work that we engage in. And you have to be as a as a mental health care professional. Um, I feel very strongly that you have to be able to engage with those those aspects of yourself that come up and that make you uncomfortable. And once you do that approach, I'm I'm positive that that approach, that affirming approach, will flow through. Yeah, just uh, this. Yeah, there's so much in the air there. One one of the thoughts that was sticking, that's still kind of sticking with me, is the you you referenced our you know our, in South Africa we have this fantastic constitution essentially, and we have this really liberal legislative framework. And and for all the years that I've uh, that I've been working, it's, it's something I find myself saying so often in so many spaces. I think as South Africa, we were so blessed as to who those individuals were that ended up working on the writing of, a, of our constitution, that they happened to have those particular liberally minded individuals mm-hmm. there that we were gifted the constitution that we have and that their voices were strong enough. But the, the, the truth is, as you were alluding to, is that our constitution was essentially so out of step with the lived reality of South African society. We know whether racially, ethnically, culturally, religiously, um, and even, you know, if we look at the various class systems, the the dominant kind of values, norms, beliefs, prejudices, you know, were very much not in sync with what our constitution. So we, we so that that's a constant kind of dissonance. So people have this kind of this opinion that South Africa is this very liberal country. And yes, in certain senses, there's aspects of liberal. But um, if you if you're in the community and in so many communities, and I've seen this, you know, you you, you highlighted, for example, Katrina, within Black African communities, but also like in Afrikaans conservative communities, in white Jewish communities, <laughs> in you know, there's the the mm. way 
it all comes together in the the rainbow nation that is that is South Africa. That is still the ongoing challenge that we have. But thankfully, at least it's about we're trying to bring the core principles that our constitution and principle and our and our legislation has enshrined. But that's like you're saying, you know, Elliot, with the advocacy work that you do and the kind of work that I'm doing in the schools, for example, mm. I'm constantly realizing what I'm trying to do is in the school, when I'm speaking to the teachers or I'm speaking to parents, I'm just trying to translate the constitution and the values that are there into the space in yeah. language that, you know, parents of a primary school in the northern suburbs of the Western Cape, you know, can maybe hear and understand it's almost like i need to be the the mother bird that needs to digest uh you know the the content in a way that mm. that they can receive so yeah i think that that work is what a lot of us in the field are mm. needing to do all the time but we need so much more of us in so many more spaces i mean i think and again if you look at south africa so many of the N the ngos and us we're in the cities the moment you go into the urban and the peri-urban and into the rural spaces, this works often not happening there. So yeah, that, that was the one um, with aspect with regards to, to the point that you were asking about. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, we know just healthcare in general is so under-resourced in the rural mm. spaces. Um, you've got a, an intern doctor having to play the gynecologist the mental health professional, the anaesthetist. I mean, we we know how underserved mm -hmm. the the rural areas are in terms of healthcare. Just want to broaden that out globally. I mean, just to look at what's happening in the US at the moment. It's very pertinent in uh -huh. terms of rights. Or I had to uh -huh. go. There. Sorry, like we have to talk about it, right? But uh -huh. there is so there's so much fear at the moment in the US about right. If this has happened for women's rights nationally what happens next is it same-sex marriage next is it trans rights next what is going to be brought in and justified through a religious lens next that that people are really starting to fear and be 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 even more conscious of so it's interesting to hear you both reflect on the landscape where we are in south africa having worked in the UK and, and having spent some time working somewhere that, you know, a long time ago in, on the NHS that much like you were, were saying that living in, in your, living your gender identity for two years, uh, you know, having to go to 101 different consultations and assessments and so on in order to have somebody sign off on a piece of paper that you, it's just, it's so archaic right now in my mind. And yet that is, even that is still miles ahead of some of the, I mean, I couldn't even say healthcare practices that exist because they don't, they don't exist in, in countries, particularly third world countries around the world. I mean, a lot of African countries and, and um, Middle Eastern countries and so on. Something okay, Trioni, can I just jump in there? There's something oh. that's kind of in my head that I just want to highlight. Um, you know, I find cult and so culture and religion are easy targets, and they're easy targets because they are problematic. Mm -hmm. um, and and so I'm I'm not giving them a pass.
But what's been really kind of concerning me of late is, so for example, within our, within the field of gender affirming healthcare, we've just had something shared by, I'm not even going to name the person. So the, so for example, oh, yeah. the, the whole idea of an ideology. So we're not mm. talking a religious perspective mm. or my Bible says or whatever says, mm. this whole kind of conservative, well, I'm even not even sure if that's the correct term, but so now you even have it's ideologies stuff. and belief systems that almost serve in a similar way as a religious doctrine or mm. and and that's hugely problematic um mm. because at least with a religion or a culture you can name it and you mm. can kind of take it by its hand and say listen let's 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 engage let's mm. you know let's have a conversation and i've had really wonderful experiences where I've, I've engaged with, you know, um, religious leaders and, uh, and, and cultural, um, you know, leaders in communities who will say, you know, I don't understand, help us understand, or, and, you know, this goes so, but I can engage there. But when you have people saying like, well, you know, we shouldn't address sexual orientation and gender identity in primary schools because this ideology is, you know, you basically are grooming children. Yeah, How yeah, do you... Yeah. Well, no, no, you, that needs, so that's almost like that's an, another band of, I don't even know what adjective mm. to use. So we can talk about culture, we can talk about religion, but there's this level I think, of... I think it's a band of, of dysphoria, to be honest. I think in those moments, there is this, there's this sense that, that, that some people get so upset by what's not in my pants. Um, that really firstly makes me wonder why you're worried about what's in my pants. Mm. Um, but secondly, it's it's like a it's like a moment of dysphoria for people. Like they can't imagine what it must feel like to not fit in your body and want to change it because it's going to be better. So they place their own, they take their own experience of I am fitting in my body. Apparently, there are people like that. I am fitting in my body. Things are things are fine. I'm good. And now you come with this idea of changing it, bringing in new hormones, cutting off things putting in place other things. And I think that triggers like a deep dysphoria for them in that moment. And it's a, unlike trans folk who, who have been dealing with the sense of gender dysphoria since earliest um, awareness, um, in my opinion, this is a new feeling to them. And I, and it's a, I know what a cuck feeling that. I think in that moment, you become so defensive that you start spewing shit at people. All of this, of course, not to excuse them. They should be, hmm. I don't know, taken to the town square and made to wear a hat or something. But it's, it, yeah, I, I, I think that there's, there's, a, there's a viciousness in, that, in those sort of responses and those sort of attacks. Hmm. And, and maybe I experience it as such because there are attacks on my skin as well. It makes it really hard for me. I tend not to engage with those media kind of things in general because it's just too hard. It's more emotional labor that I don't want. Yeah. But but yeah. this, yeah, this there's a big defensiveness in those moments that I and 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 I in in some healthcare provider education contexts, you also get that. You also yeah. pick that up. And of course, then you don't want to say "shut up" and leave my room because you actually want to to get people to engage with it. So, and I found that kind of bringing in that lens of "oh, maybe you're experiencing a bit of dysphoria just there" actually switches them, it switches things up a bit. Mm. 
That's it's really interesting. I'm I'm going to try and remember that. I was going to 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 lead on, and I'm actually glad you stopped me, Ron. I was going to lead on to talking about children and parents. You, you had mentioned this. I'm a cisgender heterosexual woman, and the work that I do is gender affirming, sex positive. So it's it's challenging for me when people I'm with in a group have very dysphoric opinions. Can we say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dysphoric opinions and how to navigate that because I will always try and explain. I'm not going to try sit there and fight with people. I'm going to try and explain and educate, help people understand, um, offer resources for them to educate themselves. But it's 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 a dynamic that I think is affronting for a lot of parents these days who are a, a generation where their children are being exposed, rightly so, to a very different landscape than they were exposed to as, as children at school. And I'd love to hear from the both of you, perhaps your thoughts on helping parents navigate it, what they could do. You know, people who are saying, you know, my, my son came home from school and his friend who who is a boy is now saying he's a girl and now my son is doing this and I don't know what to do about it. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, like you you probably need more education than your, your five-year-old does at this point. Like you need a better. No. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, where do we even start with that? I, I just want to say my biggest thing to parents, especially if, especially if their own child comes out as trans, but also in this in the case which which is often happening where where the, the child comes home and says my friend is trans or whatever, you need to understand that the 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 kids at the moment socially there's a lot of support for them across the board, and I'm so glad for them for that. Um, but for parents, I just want to say don't panic. That's the first thing. Just don't just breathe. Don't panic. It's not a new child. Don't panic. We can figure things out. Um, that's 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 usually my. Just don't panic. We can sort it out. Um, but I think on a on a longer, more sustainable approach, Ron would would be able to say more now. Okay, I, I'll just draw. You know, from from my my own experience. The first thing, the first thought that comes to mind, and the, with my working schools and with parents, um, and I, and particularly like the the. the not necessarily the parents of the trans or gender diverse child, the parents in the school community where a, a learner now comes out and it kind of, so what I've seen in many schools that immediately it's like a little atomic explosion that happens and it echoes through the entire school community. And, you know, there's like WhatsApp groups happening where the parents are, I mean, it really, it's, it still has that kind of, mm. of um, you know, kind of effect. And then there's all, and then this, ideology debates are happening on the school, you know, um, WhatsApp groups and the principals are getting emails, etc. But exactly them doing what you're saying they shouldn't do, Elliot, is you you really sense there's this panic. Mm. Um, and that said, my experience has been, I have dealt with parents or pe uh, parents where it is about they're hateful and they're transphobic. Um, and they're at the really, you know, um, severely problematic end of that spectrum. But they're not, they're not the dominant parents. 
what I'm mostly coming across is parent, it's because of significant ignorance, lack of knowledge, and lack of information, um, because they are of a generation where they haven't already, you know, as kids, you know, been on, you know, all the social media and, you know, the, the young people today, the information's trickling in in a digestible, ongoing way. What's happening for the parents of that generation is they're suddenly confronted with a new topic or aspect and they're overwhelmed and, mm. um, and then they become scared. So similarly to you, as I want to say to parents, it's okay, we've got you. Just relax. Mm. This is, you know, this is not new. So, for example, in most of my talks, the very first part of my talks that I do, um, whether it's parents or teachers, is I do the, you know, the anthropological, the historical studies, the sociological studies, all the research is in people, transgender diverse, diverse people have always existed. Even in societies that don't even exist anymore, they've dug things up and there's very clear evidence that people that didn't fit the typical gender, you know, have always existed. So I need you to know this is not new but I get that this is scary. Um, and um, that, that some, something that I've sometimes struggled with with some of my colleagues is they, I don't, I don't think it's, it's helpful to become um, confrontational. And so I, I think a person can, be an ad, can do advocacy with diplomacy. If, you, if you're coming from the position of understanding this person, this parents, all these parents are just scared and ignorant. Um, and if you're going to say, I get that, you know, um, and then education, 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 education. And ironically, um, it takes sometimes one session where I've spoken to a group of parents and just given them the most basic information and you immediately see you know, them shift. I mean, something I'm often will say, because parents have this, and then and again, this is those ideology people I was speaking to about earlier, and now they've politicized everything. And then they do all this fear mongering. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I often then, you know, and then there's the parents believing like, oh, they are doing sex changes on kids. They're doing operations on six-year-olds. They're giving hormones to nine-year-olds. I mean, the the way the misinformation is being driven by people with those political and other, you know, um, agendas is is hugely problematic. So, for example, then I'll say to Barrett, you know, all kids, you know, go through a gender experimentation and exploration stage. That's quite normal. All two or three. Um, And I'll say, you know, a mom will phone me in a panic and say, my son came down the passage wearing my high heels today as he tranced. To which I would say, Mom, it just sounded like your son was enjoying wearing your high heels today, you know, or a mom would phone, I picked up my daughter at aftercare today and she was wearing the Superman suit and she was up in the tree with, you know, um, with the boys, is she trans? To which I need to say, this sounds like your daughter was enjoying playing play up, you know, dress up today and playing with the boys. And just letting these parents know that, you know, there's a spectrum here. But yes, there are those kids that, you know, based on their, their experiences, are the would uh, or, or are trans and gender diverse. And when you say, and all we're doing in the beginning is a social transition, we're just giving them an opportunity. We're not telling them no. We're saying, okay, let's see. Let's be you. 
Um, and at any point in time, and you know, that if for any reason the child after they've done it feel, okay, actually, no, I'm not just a girl. There's actually aspects of the boy that I can now, you know, actually engage because I'm not being, you know, forced in, in a particular direction. And then if that shifts, that's okay. And I find how quickly the parents kind of relax because they're being given the appropriate information that you kind of like, almost like I have to pull that curtain of fear and terror that they've been fed by those people that I'm going to just refer to as those people. <laughs> <laughs> the, the theme that's so far for me running through this podcast is knowledge is power. doesn't matter if you're a healthcare provider, if you're a parent, even if, if you are somebody who is seeking out gender-affirming care, knowledge is power. Mm. So with lived knowledge, Elliot, is, mm. is there anything from your own experience, you know, of, of transitioning back in 2018 that you can look back on and say, if I could change how things are in schools now, this is what I'd want for the kids based on my experience or knowing what I know now because of the lived experience I have. And I'm sorry, pulling you a little bit personally into this. I hope that's okay. That's all right. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear from you, your view of it. Oh, there's, there's so much. I really should write a book at some point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think what I keep coming back to today, this, I've, I've had another conversation about this today with someone else. And what I keep coming back to today is that this is a scary moment, the, 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 the moment where you are confronted with your non-normative gender or sexuality for that matter um, is a scary moment. But, but embracing and leaning into that, that sort of authenticity is really a superpower because it, it allows you to see the world differently. And, and it's something I've actually seen not only with myself, but also with the people I love and the people who love me and the people who I spend time with, my partner, my mother, my brother, my friends, who just by, just by being on this journey with me are able to see so much now about how the world is so very strictly organized around gender, for example. You know, that, that, that panic that, a, person, that, that a, a parent has, for example, when, when they suspect their child is trans or when they learn their child is trans, is really, it's a, it's a, that panic is really goes to the real root of what happens when we say we, we are pregnant, right? Is it a boy or a girl? Or if we see a baby, is it a boy or a girl? It's such an important part of how we organize our world. And I think this, is, this has been the superpower for me as a, as a trans or one of the superpowers. There's a couple. One of the superpowers of, of transitioning and, and, and just being in this body now is being able to really decode that and see through that, see how the, how the power is organized. And, and once you have that vision, once you can see that, it really helps you to navigate your world a bit better. But it also gives you the tools to challenge where you need to challenge and move back when you need to move back. So I think that's that's a it's it's perhaps a vaguer, not as not not as immediately useful answer to, to people panicking. There is a there's a superpower, there's layers of unraveling yourself, unpacking yourself that I think is really is it is something that other people don't get to do. 
And that's that for me is the power in this. At the same time, though, I think a lot of our focus as healthcare providers specifically, but also the discourse, those other people, the 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 stories that the that the the turfy, nasty, uh, fake feminists come up with, is focused a lot on transition, and and that specific journey, the hormones and the and the and the surgeries. But, but there's a big need now, and it's getting bigger, obviously, for people to start thinking about gender-affirming healthcare beyond transition. So, so what, happens, what happens to older trans folks, for example? Uh, what happens if you are trans and you get cancer? What happens if you are trans and you want to navigate your current relationship or new relationships? There's, there's not a lot of focus on that which makes it difficult to move completely away from a pathologizing lens uh, and pathologizing language. So, so that's the, the one thing that I think that I would like to put out there to healthcare providers to challenge, to challenge, to, to kind of think more broadly and more holistically about trans people as whole people, um, not only people needing hormones and surgery and special rights. I think that that is such an important point that you've made. It's almost like, you know, you, you you go through this journey, transition, and then done, and you're signed off and off you go. Yeah. And that's it. No other issues come your way. You don't have to navigate life's difficulties that every other human being, no matter who you are, where you're from, mm-hmm. generally has to navigate. It's a really relevant point. Ron, for you, Elliot was talking about the layers and the unpacking of, of your gender identity. And that was something you spoke about at the start of this, of this podcast of, of needing to do in the kind of recent years. And that journey for you, I mean, has that been a rewarding journey for you? Has that been an affirming journey for you? Well, the short answer is absolutely and yes, but I'll unpack it a little bit because I think there's a, um, in in relation to so on the part of the spectrum where I came to realize I am and uh, is on the gender non-conforming and the gender non-binary um, uh, part of the spectrum and I think a part of the spectrum that are persons that identify there that in particular still today struggle with being um, with being affirmed as real that it's real you know, because we're still trying to kind of, you know, deconstruct the binary way world thinks. So what I'm seeing with young people is more and more young people that are coming out now are coming out as non-binary, non you know, gender non-conforming, as well as, you know, trans, um, trans um, female and trans male um, young persons. So with regards to my, because I'm, I was born biologically male and I'm comfortable with my, with my masculinity. And I'll share, but so I, and I was also one of those people, I came out late. I came out as gay late in my, in my mid twenties. I was, I married, I had a child. So um, it was very much my own training as a therapist and being taught to have to be self-reflective and to be honest, which made it possible for a lot of what was repressed and denied and avoided and rationalized away for me to finally, for me to own that and claim that. And so I came out as 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 gay um, in my in my mid twenties, but then for a for a long time, um, what I came to realize now to be my gender non-binary, I just thought you know 
the fact that when I'm ever, whenever I'm in, 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 in cisgender spaces and especially in cisgender masculine spaces, like if I, if I go to a bar and it's all straight guys, you know, social, I, I feel like a fish out of water. I just, it's like, there's a language here. There's a way of, there's a physicality. There's an energy here that just, I don't be, I don't fit here. And for a long time, I thought, well, maybe just because I'm gay and I'm, you know, maybe it's just a queer thing. Um, but then with the help of, you know, my own therapist and, and some of my, my, my close trans um, colleagues as well, they kept kind of like, Ronald, you've been doing this work for 20 years. There's got to be more here. Um, that I then was able to realize that, you know, there were there, there, or I came to a knowing that there's aspects of the feminine within me that I actually, you know, the internalized transphobia. Like, for example, I'm famously known, I never want to listen to my voice. I never want to watch myself on video when I'm recorded, because I just used, would say that, no, it's, you know, I just don't like how I sound. What I know now is that because when I listen to myself and when I watch myself, I'm confronted with those aspects of myself that is, which I now understand is part of that non-binary aspect of my of of how I experience myself at the level of, of, of in the place of gender. So that level of work and that insight has definitely given me a particular um, empathy and understanding of working with non-binary individuals as well. So I think that's what I I bring. Because I, I work with so many, you know, non-binary adults and adults will, will say that, but am I really trans? That whole idea is, you know, I, I feel this, but it's not, I don't fit the binary. And mm -hmm. kind of like, that, am I really valid? Am I real? Or is this just, you know, things I'm thinking? So definitely my own, my own work, um, and which I absolutely have to acknowledge that was people around me that care for me really deeply, that when that were going to hold me accountable to myself, that were not letting, they could see what I was doing. And they were like, Ron, sorry, we're going to keep holding the mirror up until you're going to, you're going to see this. Um, that has definitely um, helped me, I think, have a, from a lived experience, uh, a sense of what it's like to be on that part of the spectrum and feeling questioning yourself all the time and and needing to and and realizing which i realized i need no one else to fucking validate me mm. i validate myself and mm -hmm. that aha for me was and and then kind of where i find myself working with the clients i, I need to empower their voice no one gets to tell you mm. whether you're valid or not you get to decide it's your lived experience. This is your truth. This is your reality. And just because a lot of people don't get it doesn't mean it's not real and it's not valid. And that's a scary, scary place to be when you're trying to look for, you know, in the world around you for that that mirrors you and you're not finding. I want to keep talking to the both of you. One, because I adore both of you and, and just generally love any conversations and interactions we ever have. But two, because of the richness of this conversation, it's taken so many different directions and turns. And I want to truly thank you both for the authenticity and the vulnerability which you've brought to our conversation today. 
and your continued incredible work that you do to try and ensure, and I know you both do this in different spaces and with different groups, but your continued work to try and ensure that we are, are doing the best for the people that we work with and, and offering them gender-affirming health care so that they can be whoever it is that they want to be. There are so many things that that so many life experiences that are that are touched by gender because that's what we use as our organizing principle in the world. Um, so there's lots to talk about, but I think yeah, no, I think this was like a conversation. Yeah. To kind of build on just uh, I guess my final thought was is to build on your concept earlier of the superpower. I think for me, what I really want would hope people that people will get is that transgender and gender diverse persons are such a gift with regards to the diversity of who we are as human beings and being trans gifted if i can borrow my colleague esmond esther perelli um, who kind of used that the first time trans and gender diverse people offer an opportunity to all human beings the the mirror of we're all diverse and we are all unique and we are all beautiful and we are all wonderful. And, and, and I do think trans and gender diverse persons do challenge the cis heteronormative majority. Um, and if they can just calm down, don't panic, listen and go, what can I learn about myself? Yeah. Um, yes. Listening to the, the story of, of the trans... I just think the world will just, now I'm sounding like someone that's just been given a crown and I have my sash and I want world peace. <laughs> um, I do think that's what we can offer the world. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Amen. Amen. Amen to that indeed. And I say that as a cisgendered person, listen up, mm. be curious. Mm. And it it's, it's, it's a, I guess an odd, odd final thought, but I, I had a conversation on, on this season about consensual non-monogamy. And anytime I've had conversations about experiences, actions, ways of thinking that are different from what the norm says, I have always thought to myself at the end of those conversations, my goodness, what we could learn if we just opened up our minds, our ears, our hearts, and be and, and were curious. So thank you both. It's an honor. It's such a beautiful conversation for me to have had with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Are you curious about sexuality and want to learn more? Well, you can learn much more from me on several platforms. On my website, you can find short online courses to expand your knowledge, either as a member of the public or as a healthcare provider. And if you want a comprehensive sex education that you really should have had but likely never got, then check out my three-hour class on mymastery.tv where you can buy my single class for as little as 145 Rand or $13. The My Sexual Health Sexology Starter Pack includes 20, yes, 20 
value-packed sexual health courses that will transform the way you support your patient's sexual health needs. Courses include things like Diagnosing and Treating Sexual Pain by the wonderful Dr. Elna Rudolph, who's the president of the World Association of Sexual Health, and courses in ethics in sexual health practice, and even courses I've developed, such as Sex Therapy for Treating Desired Differences, and Sensei Focus, and so much more. The bundle actually has a combined value of over $3,900, and you can gain access to all of it for only $890. If you type in asking for a friend, that's one word, you will get 10% discount on this incredible bundle. Head to sexologycourses.com to take up this amazing offer. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful if you could rate and review this podcast so that you can continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics and get the information about sex you should always have had. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform.